Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. In a 2021 online survey of 1,000 Aussies carried out by McCrindle Research, respondents were asked about their openness to the existence of a range uh, of a range of spiritual realities such as ghosts, miracles, angels, a higher power, or God, the soul, ultimate meaning or purpose in life, and life after death. The results uh, surprised me a little because it indicated that as a nation, we may not be as skeptical as we assume. Here's a snapshot of the findings. 69% of Australians either believe or might believe in the existence of the soul. 53% of Australians believe or might believe in angels. 60% of Australians believe or might believe in miracles. And 58% of Australians believe believe in God or are open to the possibility that God may exist. The survey surprisingly revealed a significant generational divide. The youngest age group, the 18 to 26-year-olds, were the most open to the non-material world with 49% who said that they believe in the soul and 48% in life after death. In both cases, another 28% were open to its possibility. The percentage in this cohort who said, I believe this does not exist about any of the options, never rose to double digits. In contrast, it was the oldest age bracket, the 76-plus group, who were more skeptical. The gender differences came as no surprise. Men were on average more than twice as likely as women to take the I don't believe that this exists box. Both men and women believed or were open to the existence of God at almost the same rate. But for the other options, women were markedly more willing to profess belief than men. Uh, 50 Uh, to 38% for the soul, 38% to 30% for life after death, and 34% to 26% for angels. Well, in this morning's message, uh, we're going to find out what Jesus has to say about a spiritual reality, namely life after death. We're going to read from Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to the 30. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teachings, uh, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evil doers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west, north and south, 
and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. Stephen Hawking, the late and renowned British physicist, once said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Hawking is gravely mistaken, according to Jesus. Now, earlier, Jesus had been teaching and pleading with people to live in the temporal, in the light of the eternal, because God's judgment is a certainty. Unless they repent, they will perish, separated from God for eternity, the true source of life and light. In other words, the afterlife does exist, and it's very real. There is a day of reckoning where we will stand before God and give an account to him for how we've lived our lives. Death is not a full stop. And this message is so important that Jesus repeats it in other towns and villages en route to Jerusalem. Jesus' teaching on the subject evidently piqued the interest of at least one individual who asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? Lord, are only a few going to be saved? We don't know the motivation behind the question or if there was a question behind the question. Perhaps he senses from Jesus' earliest comment, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, that salvation can't be assumed as many had thought. We've asked similar questions, haven't we? What about people who die before having the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel or good people who reject the gospel? Will they be saved? Jesus did not answer the man's question directly, but in his remarks directed to the questioner and the larger group, he does two things. Number one, he shifts the theoretical nature of the original question to personal and practical level. Number two, Jesus tells us three things about salvation. Firstly, the man had asked, will the saved be few? Will the saved be few? Jesus turned it around and asked, will the saved be you? Will the saved be you? Can we move to the next slide? Yeah. Firstly, the man had asked a general question. Will the saved be few? Jesus turned around and asked, will the saved be you, my friend? I love Bible studies. I love discussing the scriptures in depth. But if our Bible studies, if our discussions do not grow our faith in God, if they do not leave me wanting more of God in my life, if they do not challenge me to follow Jesus more seriously, more authentically, then I want to propose to us that, that our Bible studies leave a lot to be desired. Please, let us not confuse talk fests with good Bible studies. Furthermore, to the question, the answer to the question, will the saved be you? The answer to the question of whether God opens or shuts the gate or door to his house, to use Jesus' metaphor, the answer to the question whether God's response is going to be like the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, 
where he says, come, you who are blessed by my father, or here in verse 27, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. The answer to those questions will be determined by our response to God's generous offer of salvation to to whosoever. We heard two weeks ago that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance and receive his salvation. Secondly, Jesus tells us three things about salvation. Jesus tells us three things about salvation. The salvation is not automatic. Salvation is not universal. Salvation requires our urgent attention because the door doesn't stay open forever. It will close. It will close. First, salvation is not automatic. Many Jews would have been shocked by Jesus' answer because they believed they were saved by virtue of their genealogy. The blessing pronounced upon Abraham, the founder of Israel, in their view, is automatically passed on to them as descendants of Abraham. They believed they had automatic access into the kingdom of God. Gentiles, non-Jews, on the other hand, had to first convert to their faith, Judaism, if they wanted that privilege. In a similar way, there are many churchgoers who mistakenly assume they're saved because they were baptized as children, as infants, and live good lives, and occasionally come to church, especially on Easter, Good Friday, and maybe on Christmas. Jesus knocks that notion on the head when he said in verse 23, in Luke chapter 13, make every effort to enter through the narrow, narrow door. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. The Greek word translated as effort is used to describe the enormous toil and energy that athletes exert in training and when they compete. It is the word from which we get agonize. Jesus isn't talking about salvation by human works or effort. Salvation is by grace alone. It is through faith alone, it is, and it is in Christ alone. Rather here, Jesus is stating that we are to labor hard at listening and responding to God's message. Our salvation is not something we can afford to be casual about. The notion here is very similar to the passage in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and others like it, that calls us to incline our ears to wisdom and pursue it like riches. Following Jesus is not easy, nor for the faint of heart, because there are many obstacles in the way. For one, our adversary, the devil, he's not going to make it easy for anyone who's remotely interested in God. And then you have myriads of temptations in the world that render following Jesus an unattractive option. And finally, the pride of the human heart that says, I don't need God, I am God. And that's why Paul describes following Jesus as fighting the good fight in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. 
That's why Jesus said in Matthew's gospel that the door that leads to salvation and life is small and narrow, but the door that leads to destruction is wide and broad. Second, salvation is not universal. Salvation is not universal. There's a view that's gaining traction in many Christian circles, and it's centered around the doctrine of universal reconciliation. It argues that all human beings will ultimately be saved. This position is well summed up by Bart Ehrman, a professor of religious studies, who prides himself as an enlightened ex-Christian. He says he doesn't believe in the afterlife, but if it does exist, then everyone will be in heaven because that is what we think a good and loving God would necessarily do. The problem with this idea, besides the fact that it ignores God's justice, is that we're imposing human judgment upon God. And he warns us against attributing human standards to him. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 to 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. While the belief of universal salvation is very appealing, according to Jesus, that is not the case. Again, in verse 24, Jesus said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Many will try to enter and will not be able to. Firstly, there are not many doors into the house, only one. And Jesus confirms this in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. No man can come to the Father except through me. The apostle Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the top religious leaders of his day, salvation, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And this is consistent throughout New Testament teachings that salvation is inseparably connected to faith in Jesus. And then verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from, away from me, you evildoers. The idea that there's only one outcome for everyone, regardless of choices made, is not supported in Scripture. I mean, right at the very start in Genesis chapter 2, Adam is given a choice between life with God by trusting and obeying him or death by rebelling and defying him. Third, Jesus tells us that salvation requires our urgent attention because there will come a time 
when God, the owner of the house, will close the door, and those who want to come in after the fact will not be able to. Their pleas for the door to be open will fall on deaf ears. That is as clear as it gets, and it is right from the lips of Jesus. The door shuts at death, for which we have absolutely no control over. Right? We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how we're going to die. We don't know where we're going to die. And that's why we're not to put off until tomorrow what we can do today, especially the matter of one's salvation. Eternity is at stake here. And therefore, it is a decision that we do not want to procrastinate over. If you've not put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't put off that decision until a later time because that opportunity may never come. The Apostle James writes, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. For those who miss their opportunity, Jesus foretells that horrible moment in verse 28. They will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. The meaning of weeping is obvious, but the gnashing of teeth can be an expression of rage. And we see this in Acts chapter 7. There Stephen was preaching the gospel and told the religious leaders that they were in desperate need of salvation, of God's salvation. The religious leaders were furious with what he said, and they gnashed their teeth at what Stephen said. So the weeping and gnashing of teeth refers to a sense of, of deep pain and rage in the people for not responding to God's mercy until it was too late. The chapter concludes with some Pharisees urging Jesus to leave because Herod is out to kill him. Some commentators argue that the Pharisees had ulterior motives, but others believe that that's not the case, that not all Pharisees were opposed to Jesus, like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. The Herod here is the younger son of King Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Jesus replies by asserting that come what may, he will see his mission through in Jerusalem, the city that represents the nation of Israel. He will continue to drive out demons and heal people. He will proclaim the Lord's favor encapsulated in him. And eventually he will die like the other prophets sent to Jerusalem in times past. He will not avoid death, but embrace it fully because it is the pivot point in his ministry. Then Jesus laments for Jerusalem in a style reminiscent, reminiscent of the prophets of old. In great pain and sorrow, he tells Israel that in rejecting him, they're in fact rejecting God's warning of impending judgment and also God's offer and provision of salvation through him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I cannot think of a more tender image than this. Remember my point two weeks ago that God's judgment is real. But notice how Jesus expresses God's judgment. We must do likewise. Here's a summary in application. As much as God is love and tender like a mother hand who longs for everyone to be gathered under his wings and not perish, the salvation he offers is not automatic. It is not universal. And the salvation he offers requires our urgent attention. The Bible tells us that the gate of salvation is narrow, yet all individuals can enter through it, enter through if they place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. If you are not a follower of Jesus, can we? Yeah. If you're not a follower of Jesus, please heed the warning and appeal of Jesus in the passage we have just read. If you are a follower of Jesus, what of those in your front lines who do not know Jesus? Here's an application for you. Sometime this week, would you make time to pray for those in your front lines that you'll have further opportunities to share Jesus with them? And pray that their hearts will be soft and receptive. Remember the McCrindle's research that we started the sermon with. That Aussies are not as skeptical as we think about non-material matters like the soul and the afterlife. Have a great week. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your warnings to us and your appeals to us spoken with such tenderness, spoken with such compassion and mercy. And I pray, Lord, as we speak to others in our front lines, that we will adopt the same posture, that we will do so with great compassion, with great uh, sorrow, with uh, great mercy as well, and tenderness in our hearts. Lord, I pray that, uh, that in our front lines, uh, that we will be bolder than we've ever been, that we'll be more tender than we've ever been, that we will be more courageous than we've ever been. Father, I pray that you will open doors for us to share this very important message of salvation with those in our front lines. And for those, Lord, who are hearing me uh, uh, and, and following our service online or who are here physically who do not know you, I pray that you will speak to them powerfully, that you will speak to them very clearly about their need of salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.